No. You do want to get out your sermon outline. It says the need for kingdom faith. So that you can follow along. We are in Matthew 17. We're at one of those sort of hard sayings of Jesus. And uh, so we're going to read reading verses 14 through 20. Matthew 17, 14 through 20. You want to follow along in your Bibles, read along in your devices, look in the bulletin. Just get the Word of God in front of you so that we can read along. Please listen carefully to God's Word. Matthew 17, 14 through 20. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, Have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire, and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Thank you for teaching us about your son, Jesus. Help us to understand this hard saying this morning. We want to have the kind of faith that Jesus talks about, and we know we usually don't. So help us to consider what it means to have effective faith. By your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. One of the greatest art collections in the world is owned by the Roman Catholic Church, and the art galleries of the Vatican Museum are simply amazing. One of the paintings hanging in the Vatican Museum is the Transfiguration by the Italian master Raphael. There are many who think this is his greatest painting, I don't know who has the clicker, but if we could put that up. Should be there. That's the bottom of it. We scroll down or... Okay. Well, the part of the painting you don't see, the top half is Jesus being transfigured with the disciples... Uh, has Moses and Elijah and the disciples, and um, and they're sort of blinded by the transfiguration. This is the ground level. This is the bottom half of the painting, and uh, uh, you see the demon possessed boy there, sort of flailing around, and his father behind him, holding him up, and uh, 
Surrounding him are the disciples and followers of Christ, some of whom, well, you can't see, we don't have the whole picture, but some of whom are pointing up uh, to uh, Christ, who will be the only answer for the boy. And Raphael has captured something of the contrast between the transfiguration, which is so great you can't even see it, (laughs) and the troubled world of sin below. If you stop and think about it, it's not a whole lot different today. The risen and ascended Christ is in his glory above, which we cannot see, and the world in which we live is full of pain and racked by sin. You can turn that off. And the disciples have just hit what had to be one of the great spiritual highs in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus was transfigured, and even if just for a moment, they got to see what his glory really looked like. But below, every mountain is a valley. And it's time for the disciples to come down from the mountain. And this morning, we're going to see what happens when they do. Before we go there, we're going to take a moment to look at the biblical and historical uh, setting. In short, we need to be reminded about these miracle lessons. These miracle lessons. The setting for this passage is fascinating. One of the things that attracts me to the miracle accounts in the Gospels is they focus on Jesus and his work for our salvation. Can't think of anything that's more important for us than this, to take our eyes off of our world, off of ourselves, off of our works, even off of our faith, so that we can focus them on Jesus. And in the miracles, we find that Jesus does the work that's needed to deliver us from weakness and condemnation, from danger and sickness, from death, and even from the grip of the devil. We don't have the power to save ourselves, much less other people. But the miracles point us to our only hope, the one who can and does save us. Another thing the miracles instruct us on is how Christianity works. They bring alive a biblical portrait of our condition. We're the ones who are being pictured by the lepers and the paralytics, the sick and the dead and the demon-possessed. And in the miracles, we see Jesus in action. We're shown his compassion, his willingness to heal and touch and save, and most of all, his ability to do so. And we see here that Jesus is both willing and able to save us. This morning's passage from Matthew 17 is another miracle given not to impress us, but to instruct us. The miracle occurs right after Jesus' transfiguration. After Peter's great confession, the high point of Jesus' Galilean ministry, he takes his three closest disciples up the mountain, he's revealed to them in all of his heavenly glory. And with him are Moses and Elijah. And in Luke's account, it says in Luke 9, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the topic of their conversation is the cross, as God's plan fulfilled by Jesus. And then Peter, James, and John hear a voice from heaven. We read that earlier in uh, Matthew 17, verse 5. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then Luke tells us that the miracle that our passage is concerned with begins 
on the next day when they had come down from the mountain. A great crowd met them. So they've left the glory of the mountaintop for the valley, back in the world, so to speak. Just as Jesus had left heaven to be born into this world, so now he leaves its heavenly glory, descends into this huge crowd of people. Let's dive in, look at this miracle. It's given in response to the most fundamental of prayers, shortened to the point, and our text starts with the pleading father. The pleading father, verses 14 and 15. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now put yourself in this father's place. You're a parent of this boy. We don't know exactly how old he is, but he's suffering terribly. Try to understand what his life is like. His boy lies sleeping, curled up in his covers in the shadow of the dying light of a small oil lamp. Father sits next to him, runs his hand over the boy's head, gently stroking his hair, and as he does, tears slowly slide down his face. Tears for the trade this boy will never learn. Tears for the wife this boy will never love. Tears for the children he will never look at as they lay sleeping in their beds. Satan has robbed his son of all these things. And the father's role as a parent has been reduced to that of a caretaker. He too's been robbed. He's been robbed of the simple joys of parenthood, robbed of all the dreams and all the aspirations that fathers have for their sons, robbed of all the little boy noises, all of the childish questions, all of the playful laughter, all of the father and son talks. And I imagine that anxious questions must haunt him. What will happen to my son when his mother and I die? Who will take him then? Who will feed him and look after him? And I imagine that his heart sinks because he already knows the answer to those questions. No one. No one wants a deaf mute prone to violent seizures. Right now the boy looks peaceful, lying in his bed. But his life is anything but. The seizures that come upon him are sudden and sporadic. When they attack, he's thrown into this frothing fit, grinding his teeth, foaming at the mouth like a rabid animal. When the seizures fade away, he finds himself encircled by worried eyes. And as he gets up, the people back away and scold him for being out on the streets. Understandably, he's a child who's usually by himself, a lonely island surrounded by silence and the stares of others. The neighborhood kids are warned to stay away from him. Another robbery. His playmates have been stolen along with his childhood. His life has been basically picked clean of anything of value, and he stands looking like some decrepit building, vacant, vandalized, and slated for demolition. And around every corner is the potential for destruction. See, a cruel spirit lies in wait for him, like a bully waiting to pounce on a kid coming home from school. Sneaks up on the boy, jumps him from behind, mashes his face into the dirt, delighting in the tyranny. 
This is our adversary, the devil. This is who he is. In all his cowardice and cruelty, this is his way to push and shove and brutalize. Like a ravenous lion, the Bible tells us, the devil roams, around, roams about seeking who he may devour. Seeking someone he can get his paws on and sink his teeth into. Preying on the weak, the innocent, the defenseless, savagely and viciously as a lion stalks other animals, Satan singles out the youngest, the most vulnerable, and ruthlessly runs him down. But now the father hears that Jesus is in town. And he turns to him in hopes that this redeemer can somehow bring his son back from the clutches of Satan's paws. And he falls on his knees and clasps his hands in this desperate pleading. He begs as only a parent in deep pain can. But when he arrives, he discovers that Jesus is off with a few of his disciples having a mountaintop experience. So he turns to the only people available, but sadly he discovers that at least in this case and on this day, Jesus' remaining followers are the powerless disciples. The powerless disciples turn to verse 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now one of the great opponents of those who follow Christ is unbelief. And before we get to answering the prayer of the Father, we have to see that first Jesus has to overcome the unbelief of all those around him. The disciples who had been left in the valley when Jesus went up to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, they've already tried to cast the demon out of this boy, but they couldn't. This is the immediate cause of the problem that Jesus confronts upon his return from the Mount of Transfiguration. Crowd is watching. His disciples are supposed to be able to drive out demons. They've been given that power. They've been sent out. They've already done that on occasion, but now they fail. And because their ministry is an extension of Jesus' ministry, you can see right away that his authority is being called into question. Because of their failure, the crowd is wondering if Jesus isn't bogus too. And we're meant to see the tension as everyone looks to Jesus to see what he's going to do. And as usual, Jesus does the unexpected. He cries out, verse 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? We need to be clear here that Jesus is referring to the disciples, though I doubt the crowd was any less stubborn or faithless. The nine disciples who stayed behind including Matthew, the author. Mark's version is very different. It's essentially Peter's gospel. And remember, Peter wasn't there when they tried to do that. So he doesn't cover this quite the same way. But these disciples who stayed behind, they tried to heal this boy, and they couldn't, evidently because of their unbelief. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says, how long am I to bear with you? Some versions translate that to read, how long must I put up with you? 
This isn't really an outburst of anger. It's a figure of speech. It's kind of like the teacher who says, how long must I put up with you to her students when she knows full well she's teaching them all year? Or the mother who says, how long must I put up with you to her uh, kids when she's devoting her whole life to them? Or a wife who says, how long must I put up with you to her husband who seems unable to get home in time for dinner, even though she has every intention of putting up with him for the rest of her life? Not that I would have any experience with that. <laughs> Don't think that Jesus bears any less sorrow for us as his heart is wounded by our unbelief. How he must look on us who are really no different from these disciples, and may in fact be quite a bit worse than they are. He's given us faith to know that we're his, and yet we're so often unwilling to exercise that faith. And how does Jesus overcome this lack of faith? How long, he cries. Well, the rest of Matthew's gospel actually gives us the answer as long as it takes. Jesus overcomes our unbelief by his patient love, his long-suffering grace. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And with complete assurance, Paul wants you to know that God will continue his work in you until it's finally finished. And to see how this plays out, we have to turn for a moment to the longer parallel passage in the Gospel of Mark, which is really Peter's Gospel. And we read there in Mark 9, the prayer of faith. So at this moment in time, this is the father's last shot at helping his son. He's been let down by the disciples. His faith has been badly shaken by their failure to heal his son. He just doesn't know anymore if Jesus is really the answer. After all, his disciples weren't much help, were they? But what choices does he have? He has just a little faith and a lot of doubt. And he comes before Jesus. The boy is rolling around on the ground, foaming at the mouth as this drama between the crowd and the disciples and between Jesus and the Father rolls on above him. Now we already know something about Jesus that the Father doesn't know. We've seen Jesus do this before in earlier miracle accounts that appear in the Gospels. And Matthew has already told us that Jesus has absolute power over the demons, and they're terrified of him. But the Father isn't aware of any of this. He's not aware of this cosmic drama being played out around him. He's like any other frightened parent with a sick kid. He's bewildered, helpless, desperate, just like you would be, just like I would be if this were our son rolling around on the ground. He's brought his son to Jesus' disciples, hoping for help, but their failure has caused him to lose most of that hope. And now we see the Father's words to Jesus clearly shows he isn't expecting much anymore. Mark 9, verses 21 through 24. And Jesus asked his Father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
We're looking at a human life about to be obliterated by an evil power. And we've been made aware that the Father is doubtful of Jesus' ability to do anything about it. And the outcome hangs here on this point. Heaven and earth hold their breath. The demon's already deployed his weapons. The boy's thrashing about in terrifying fashion. And Jesus, as we already know, can vanquish this evil power with a mere word. But he delays. The disciples have failed. The scribes and Pharisees look on with scorn. The crowd is being entertained by this first century reality show. And no one knows what to expect as Jesus plays out the scene by repeating the Father's words back to him. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And in a split second, hope returns to the Father. Father reaches out and grasps all his might at the giver of life and health and hope. He puts himself totally into Jesus' hands. And in words that have been called the greatest cry of faith in the entire Bible, he places himself at the mercy of God. And so in this, what I consider one of the great prayers of the Bible, we read, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, Jesus was just lamenting the disciples' faith. The unbelief of the Father is rewarded. Why? One, because he admitted it. And he asked for help. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus answers that simple but profoundly honest prayer. One pastor, Galen Dalrymple, he wrote the following. He said, I've always been touched by the prayer of this father for his son. Being a father myself, I can identify to some extent with his anguish over a sick child. I've been beside the bed of my children when they were sick including standing at the bedside of a son with a broken neck and an uncertain future. And I've pleaded with God. I've begged with him. I bargained with him to the best of my mere mortal ability. When your child is sick, you'll do anything to get them the help they need. If they're seriously sick, you turn to God with a vengeance. I understand this man. I've prayed for healings too. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it hasn't. My son still suffers. But praise be to God, he has full mobility and is relatively unhampered by his injury. Was God good in that situation? Oh yes, a thousand times yes. But when my prayers are sometimes unanswered, or when I have something serious enough to pray about, I recite the words of this man. Do I believe? Yes, I do. If I didn't, I wouldn't be praying to start with. But I know my faith is weak. I know my faith isn't nearly what it ought to be. And I'm comforted that Jesus didn't tell the Father he would have to grow in faith before he would come and take care of his son. All that God has ever demanded or wanted from us is the same thing he wanted from the crowds of people who followed Jesus from town to town and village to village. He wants us to come to him with whatever tiny seed of faith we have and a burning desire in our hearts for more. I believe, help my unbelief, is a wonderful prayer, the kind Jesus loves to answer. And he answers this prayer because he's a powerful Savior. He's a powerful Savior. Look to verse 18. That says verses 18 to 23, but it should just be 18 to 20. 
Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So we have two events here. We have the healing of the demon-possessed boy, and then the response of the disciples. So let's deal with them one at a time. The father has brought the boy to Jesus. Notice that the father tells Jesus his son is epileptic. The Greek word used here literally means moonstruck. It's a term that's often used for epileptics in the gospel. We don't know if they actually had the medical term uh, then. Um, and if you look at the description in Mark 9, Mark describes the symptoms of epilepsy. The grinding of teeth, convulsions of the body, frothing at the mouth. It's, this is a severe case of epilepsy. And in the parallel account, Mark also tells us something else about this a young man. We're told he's unable to speak and unable to hear. So in addition to suffering from epilepsy, he's deaf and mute. And then, of course, both Matthew and Mark make it very clear this child is demon-possessed. So we have three different problems afflicting this boy. And the exact relation between the demon possession and the other diseases is not specified. Was Satan given the power to bring about these physical symptoms? Or did Satan take advantage of these physical symptoms to afflict the boy? We're not told. The only thing we're told is that Satan's hand is in it, that the supernatural is in it. So this child is afflicted physically. He has physical problems. As best as we can tell, it's a both-and situation. He suffers both physically and spiritually. He clearly needs help. And a very memorable interchange. I think one of the most important dialogues in all of the Bible the father comes, essentially says, would you heal my son? And what does Jesus say? Essentially, I can if you believe. That's what he says. All things are possible for one who believes. He doesn't use the word if, but it's clear. I can heal your son if you believe. And what does the father say? I'm riddled with doubts. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Basically, I'm trying but I'm riddled with doubts. Jesus says, if you believe, I'll hear your son. And the father says, I'm riddled with doubts. And Jesus heals his son. So what do we learn here? Well, I think the first thing we learn is actually very, very good news. Helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to accessing the power of God. If you're going to access the power of God, Helplessness is the first step. That's good news. Notice Jesus doesn't tell this man, I'm the glory of God in human form. How dare you come before me with your doubts? Purify your heart. Confess your sins. Get rid of your doubts. Go away, and when you come back and you've really surrendered to me totally, and you really, 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 really worked all the doubt out of your heart, and you can come before me with a pure heart, then you can come and ask for healing and blessing. He doesn't do that. Thank God. Jesus is telling us effective faith is not saying, I'm faithful, now bless me. 
See, when you say, I've lived a faithful life, now bless me, that's faith in you. That's being your own Savior. That's not faith in him. But to say what the boy's father says, I'm not faithful. I'm riddled with doubts. I can't muster the strength to meet my own moral and spiritual challenges, but please help me. That's effective faith. To say I don't have faith, I'm riddled with doubts, I'm not faithful, but please help me. Is trusting Jesus instead of trusting yourself. And Jesus says, when you say that, my power is released into your life because now, finally, you have faith in me. Now, there is an absolute difference between the religions of the world and Christianity. The religions of the world say, you give God a good record, and then God owes you blessing. Christianity says God gives you, at infinite cost to himself, a perfect record through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, and then you live gladly for him. They are absolutely different. They are totally different. The world's religions start by saying, look, I'm holy, I'm faithful, I've summoned up all my faith, I got rid of all my doubts, now you have to work in my life. And I'm sorry, there are branches of Christianity that talk like that. God will only bless me if I get my act together. But here's a man who says, I don't have enough faith. I have doubts. I don't have what it takes, but please help me. And Jesus says, I can work with that. Because that's effective faith. It's a way of saying, accept me not because of what I am, but because of what you are. The first step to access the power of God is admitting your own helplessness. The second thing here is the response of the disciples. Verse 19, Then the disciples came to him privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. Apparently they weren't able to heal the boy because they lacked effective faith to use the power that Jesus had given to them. Having little faith is actually somewhat a typical condition for the disciples. Do you remember the feeding of the 5,000? Do you remember the feeding of the 4,000? Remember the storms? There have been two storms in Matthew, one in which Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat, and another one where he walked on the water. And the common denominator in all four of those incidents is the phrase, O you of little faith. Those incidents illustrate that little faith is the kind of faith that believes in God when you already have something in hand, when his provision has already been made, when things are going well with the disciples and everything's under control. They find it easy to trust Jesus, but as soon as the circumstances become uncertain, the situation becomes threatening, their faith withers. And so Jesus continues this lesson on faith in verse 20. He says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now Jesus does seem to contradict himself, first rebuking the disciples for having little faith, and then telling them that even the smallest faith can move mountains. But as he made clear in the parable of the mustard seed back in Matthew 13, the seed doesn't represent littleness as much as littleness that grows into greatness. Matthew 13, 
We read, it is the smallest of seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Small faith can accomplish great things only if, like a mustard seed, it grows into something greater than it was. You might say that mustard seed faith is persistent faith. It's growing faith. It continues to grow and becomes effective because it never gives up. It must be clearly understood that Jesus is not here talking about literally moving a mountain. The apostles never did that. The Lord never uh, did anything like that. Nobody in the 2,000 plus year history of the church has done that. It's a a figure of speech, it's actually very common in the Old Testament. He's using Old Testament language here, representing the ability to overcome whatever it is that God needs you to overcome, to surmount great obstacles. But the Lord's giving his disciples a sample of what their lives are going to be like once he's gone, once he's returned to heaven, when they can no longer see him or touch him or talk with him in the way that they're used to doing now. He's teaching them persistence. We don't know how often they tried to cast the demon out of that boy, but at some point they gave up. And when Jesus first sent the disciples uh, out, their success at healing and casting out demons was immediate, but he never promised that that would always uh, be the case. And the disciples had to learn, unlike the Lord, the power is not inherent in themselves. It only comes from him, by his divine provision and his divine will. And I actually find it somewhat encouraging to realize that even the apostles, with their unique calling and miraculous gifts, always have to rely on Jesus to minister effectively. To strengthen their faith and their sense of dependence, the Lord sometimes makes them wait, just as he often does with us today. To help strengthen our faith, he may make us wait a long time for an answer to prayer. Now, to be honest, their faith is a lot like the faith of most believers. When they're healthy and have the necessities of life, faith is great. But when they're in need, faith is small. It easily gives way to doubt. Honestly, it's hard to have effective faith. It's hard to live by faith. To live by faith, that's a frightening thought to some people. It's a frightening thought to most people. Living by faith means you have to get up every single day and depend on someone else for everything in your life. Your food, your clothing, your heat, your air conditioning, your car, your job, your family, your everything. Whether you want to admit it or not, if you're a normal, healthy human being, you are to some extent a control freak. We all want to feel that we're in control of our lives. We want to know that we can make things happen. We want to have something concrete to put our hands on, something that we know we can move this way or that way in order to achieve our goals. We want to feel like we are the ones protecting our children and keeping them safe from harm. We want to feel like we are the ones who have achieved whatever it is that we have at work or at school. That's why self-help books sell so many copies and just line the shelves of bookstores. It's why how-to articles appear in virtually every issue of every magazine, showing us how to improve our lives, improve our outlooks, reduce our stress, overcome our problems, and make ourselves better people. It's why status symbols are popular, 
bigger house, nicer yard, name brand clothes, and just about everything else that people put themselves in debt to have. And it's why so many people have such a hard time placing all their faith in Jesus. They can't see him. They can't touch him. They have great difficulty believing in and depending on someone who lived 2,000 years ago. The reality is, the truth is, more people have faith in the garbage man showing up on Tuesday than they do in Jesus. Even professing Christians give lip service to having faith, but when it comes down to the basics, they often have as little faith as their unbelieving neighbors. Why? What is it about having total faith in Jesus that's so frightening for so many people? It's because we, all of us, to some degree or another, want to be in control. And we've been surrounded by that. We've been surrounded by me-generation thinking in our magazines, newspapers, movies, books. Everything in our lives has pushed us to focus on being in control. And we fight desperately in an effort to hang on to that control, even after we place our faith in Jesus. We'll believe in him as far as eternity is concerned, but absolute faith right here, right now, that's a different matter. And so we go along being in control on the surface, but secretly, deep down, knowing we're not in control of anything. We think we're in control of our jobs, and the company goes belly up, and we're out of a job. And then all those status symbols, all those things that we bought with money we didn't have to impress people we don't like, are all lost because we can't pay for them anymore. We think we're in control of our marriages and our spouses leave or die and we're alone. We think we're in control of our children and then one gets arrested for possession or gets pregnant and we realize we don't have control after all. So where do we turn? The only place we can turn to find comfort, to find peace, to find confidence for tomorrow is to Jesus. When all else has failed us, we realize we should have turned to him in the first place. And so with the Father, we turn to Jesus and say, I believe. Help my unbelief. There is a tense moment in this passage as the Father and the crowd stare at this boy lying on the ground. It's a moment begging for belief, not just what will happen, but what do you believe? And to us, Jesus would say, all things are possible for one who believes. Believes what? Believes that all things are possible? Believes in faith healing? Believes in belief or has faith in faith? No, none of that. The faith which is brought forth by Jesus' dialogue with the Father is not assenting to some theological propositions. It's not agreeing with religious principles. It's not acquiescing to some spiritual program. It's a radical trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who, as Romans 4 tells us, gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The one who creates faith when there is no faith. Just like this father, it is in the hard times that God comes to you when you plead with God to do something and honestly appeal to him with a broken and halting voice, I believe, help my unbelief. 
And the only question is whether or not you believe in him, even if it's just a little bit. And then Jesus comes to us anyway and touches us and heals us and saves us, and that's grace because we're getting what we don't deserve. No matter how great your doubts, how inadequate your emotions, no matter how often you feel like you're just going through the motions, you wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't have some amount of faith, however small that seed may be. And that's the Spirit of Christ already at work in your life, and it's enough. And so now we have the infinite privilege of praying, I believe, help my unbelief. See, the story in Matthew 17 isn't so much about the healing of a little boy, and it's not so much about the pleas of a desperate father, as it is about sinners in need of a Savior, someone who's able to use what little faith we have and do amazing, miraculous things with it. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. And in this passage, once again, we see Jesus. This morning, we ask you to increase our faith. Take what little faith we have and make it grow. Make it effective. Make it as real as the garbage man coming on Tuesday. Give us the courage to face everything in our life that's out of our control. And that's everything. And pray, I believe. Help my unbelief. Make your son the object of our faith so that we will know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from 1 Peter chapter 1. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. God bless you. Have a great day.